and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Welcome, listeners, to the 100th episode of She's the Boss. I'm Fabian Datner, your temporary host, and I have the great privilege of surprisingly interviewing Jules Brook. The tables are turned. Welcome, <laughs> Jules. What's it like to have the focus on you? I am giggling like a little schoolgirl. It's hilarious. <laughs> Why is it hilarious, oh, beautifully coloured woman? Oh, thank you so much. Um, why is it hilarious? Because nobody really... Uh, asks me about me. I get lots of stuff about what am I doing with She's the Boss and what am I doing with Handle Your Own PR, and I've been interviewed lots of times about that, but no one has really ever asked me about me and my background. All right. So my first question, which I imagine everyone who knows you wants to hear the honest answer about, why do you colour your hair pink? (laughs) i tell you why. It's a very simple answer. Um, I saw a po- I saw um, an article about Helen Mirren going to a uh, film festival or the film opening, and she had soft pink, baby pink hair. And I remember looking at it and thinking, "That looks amazing!" And if she can do it, I can do it. So I tried it, and that was in two thousand and fourteen, and I've never stopped. It suits you beautifully. You. How you. many people have imitated you? I don't think anyone has ever imitated me. I see lots of hot pink hair out there, but I haven't really seen. Uh, my my favourite description of what my hair colour should be is fairy floss, and I never yes, really I see love that colour. It absolutely is. And so are you telling me of the 99 women, brilliant women, entrepreneurs, world shakers that you've interviewed, not a single one has said, how do you do your hair, Jules? No, other than you, I think in your interview you said well, I've got I hair in you. me. <laughs> I promise you, next time you see me, my hair's going to be that colour. Okay. So, <laughs> is what you look like important to you? Uh, that's a really good question. I think it it is, and it isn't. So, what do I mean by that? As Look, I don't really care what I look like, but I love fashion um, and I love being a little bit out there and a little bit different. So for the, to that extent it does, but I don't care if people see me without makeup or uh, with my hair bedhead <laughs> and all those kind of things. That hasn't ever really bothered me. So out there and a bit different, which you definitely are, where did that start? Uh, my mum would say right the way from when I was a little girl, really. She was always um, – she. my mum is a very conservative woman. She's a physio. She was married to a doctor, my dad, and um, and they were in the British Army. So it was oh. extremely conservative. And my mum has this streak in her where she loved to buy me really out there clothes when I was younger and get me looking, you know, a bit different, I guess. And um, – 
And I just kind of stuck with it. I mean, I clearly remember her buying me clothes for my, like, it must have been my 14th or 15th birthday. And she had obviously had so much fun. And now as a mother, I can understand. She'd gone out and bought a black mini skirt and it was, it had a, <laughs> and then a bright orange belt. And I can't remember what the top was. It was orange and black stripes or something. And um, a corset kind of, if you remember those corset sort of big wide belts that were around in the 80s, she'd bought all of that bright orange earrings and I remember looking at it and going, oh, my God, Mum, I will never, ever wear that. That's awful. But I used to love wearing all sorts of other strange things. And my parents, even at my 21st and at my wedding, went on about the fact that when Jules was 18 and 17, she used to go out in underwear. And all I did was I used to go to the army disposal stores by um, – long johns and splatter them with paint and down arrows like uh, I was a convict and I'd wear them out all the time and my dad would go, you can't go out looking like that. You're wearing your underwear. So were they actually <laughs> British? My, both of them are Irish. All my family's Irish. Irish. Yeah, we're the first so generation to move humor? here. Yep, great Irish sense of humour. Did it ever occur to you that your mum was making a point with your black mini and bright orange belt? <laughs> No. <laughs> we, are, she, you, are you close to your parents or were close to your parents? Yeah, we're, look, we're, I'm part of a very close family. Our friends used to describe us as the Brady Bunch family. Uh, there's myself and three brothers and mum and dad. I guess mum and I have always had a bit of a scratchy relationship off and on, um, but we are all very, very close and we see each other all the time. And, you know, we're, as you do with family, you know they've got your back, so... Always, yes. always. Got and I have back. three amazing brothers who I'm very, very close to, and they are all incredibly successful entrepreneurs. Are so, they? Yeah, so I've got my – I'm the eldest. The next brother down started Stomping Ground, which is a beer brand that most people would know about mm-hmm. now. Um, the brother – after that, has started a gluten-free beer brand because he's a celiac and he's winning gold medals everywhere. Uh, that's called Two Bays Brewing. Oh, yeah. And then my third brother has been very big in advertising. He's just left um, a very large company that he was the chairman of and is now twiddling his thumbs and working out what to do next. But, yeah, they're all very successful and very entrepreneurial. So from your very conservative army origins, <laughs> it seems to me four eccentrics were given birth to. Jump us forward into the present and the yes. question you ask all your guests, what are you doing now? Oh, what am I doing now? Well, I am juggling two businesses that I'm incredibly passionate about and I don't seem to be able to give either of them up. Uh, the first one is Handle Your Own PR, which I set up pretty much the same time that my first child was born. No, that's not true. I started doing PR then. Um, and when the GFC hit was when I started Handle Your Own PR. Um, I actually gave the agency, I, I started it with another friend of mine, Simone, and she took the agency and I took Handle Your Own PR back in 2015. So that's one thing. And I'm very passionate about helping people understand that PR is free marketing and that it's incredibly powerful and that anyone can do it. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is She's the Boss, which really sprung up out of COVID and has just become an absolute passion of mine. I just love the idea of being able to make women visible, to be able to, like, there are just so many incredible um, female founders and women running businesses, and I want everyone to know about them. So that's my um 
my passion, I guess, with She's the Boss. So let, let's start with uh, handle your own PR. So yeah. given the family's predisposition, it's not really surprising you got into something like that, but why, wh- why that? What was so important to you in that? Why is that a passion project? Um, look, it started out as a mis- not a mistake, but for anyone who's listening who remembers Con the Fruiterer, aka yeah, Mark how Mitchell. Could we forget? So, a friend of mine is really good friends with him, and we went to a party. It was a social situation. Um, we were chatting for quite a long time and got on really well. And two weeks later, he rang me and he said, "Jules, they're bringing out a best of Con the Fruiterer DVD, and I've told the company that you're the best person to do the PR." And I, for two things, one, I had a very young child. I'd started a business called Handle Communications that was going to be graphic design and I wasn't able to make any money out of it. So I was kind of like, what am I going to do? And then this guy rings me and there was a nice big $5,000 check dangling for me to do the PR. And I rang all my friends and said, who did PR? And I said, how about you do the PR and I'll do the client facing and we'll split the bill. And they went, no, no, we're too busy. And anyway, you should give it a go. You'll love it. So I tried it and loved it and couldn't believe how easy it was. I, I did used to do sales before that. So I've never had any problem talking with people over the phone. And I think the journalists were quite surprised that I was, you know, quite so chatty. And um, and I just got started. And then once I taught myself, I taught a couple of other people how to do it. I had my gorgeous friend, Simone, who my dad was dying of a brain tumour pretty soon after we started the business. And um, she said, I'll come and help you. I'll come and help you for free. I know what PR is because I had no idea at that stage. And then I discovered I was pregnant with twins, which was another really big shock. And about a year or two after that, the GFC hit all our PR clients who were mumpreneurs and startups peeled off because they didn't have any money. And I just had this moment where I thought, why don't I teach people how to do PR? And I remember saying to Simone, why don't we just sell media contact lists and explain to people how to do it? Because the media really needs the stories and the business owners really need the publicity. So we could just be in the middle teaching them. And I so remember her saying to me, Jules, we will cannibalize all our clients. They're all going to want to do it themselves. And I was like, I don't think so. I think we'll get the the clients that can't afford to pay for, you know, three months worth of PR for an agency. And so we set it up that way. And we, gosh, we, we've just had so many different permutations and combinations along the way. But the biggest one was in 2017 when I launched the PR Engine, which is a PR SaaS platform. It's really the only one of its kind in the world. And um, it makes and it really- And so slow down. What is that? Okay, so the PR engine, I didn't even know what SaaS was, so let me explain what that was in case anyone doesn't know. It means software as a service, which basically means that you go onto a website and do everything on the website. And so I was building another website myself and I met this guy who said, why don't you turn it into a SaaS platform and have people run their campaigns off the website? And I remember going, can you even do that? Like I didn't even know you could do that. And he said, yes, and it won't cost very much and we'll be able to get it out in a couple of months. And so I went with that a whole idea and then – 
And then I had one of those pivotal moments because halfway through the build, we ran out of money and he said, and I said, great, let's roll up our sleeves. This is what it's all about being, you know, a startup. And he said, I don't work like that. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going, call me when you've got some money. And I just remember being frozen. We had literally cleaned out my bank account, the business's bank account. He'd put some money in and I couldn't believe he wanted to walk away. But that was what happened. And so I um, got an amazing guy called Paul Lang who came and helped me and we just built it up from there. But it was, uh, yeah, and, and why can't I let it go? I don't know because I just think it's so needed. I still feel that there are so many business owners that aren't aware of what they could be doing and, and how easy it would be for them and how badly the media needs that content. So you do handle your own PR on your own now? I do it on my own. I've got a lovely girl called Pawandeep who does all the coding and the software-y kind of automated emails and stuff. I've still got Paul working on it with me off and on, uh, but that's it pretty much, yeah. It's a, it's a small business that I am desperate to grow and um, I'm always having conversations with people about, you know, how can we get it global? I've had it in the UK and the US before and it didn't work, but I'm about to venture into the US again, so watch this space. Well, this is going to be very <laughs> interesting i'll come to that in a minute about lessons learned from all the women you've interviewed so yes. tell me about she's the boss only started in covid and you're up to the 100th episode which is you yeah how in, in god's name did you manage to do 99 episodes plus this one during the pandemic this is only 18 months it's not like four years it's actually a year this month since i started the podcast if you can believe it and i've done 135 interviews um but we're going to slot this one in and how did i do it i don't know i think i realized that i absolutely love both interviewing people and finding out about people and being able to showcase them. So whereas most people struggle, A, to find guests and B, to find the time, I found that I was doing about four or five interviews a week, every week for probably eight or nine months. Then I slowed it down because I think I was about 40 episodes ahead. <laughs> I thought that's going to take a year to come out almost. Um, and I slowed down a little bit the last couple of months, but I've already ramped it up. I think I've got four or five interviews every week for the next three or four weeks. So I can't help myself. So tell us, tell us why you do that. Just give us a real sense because that's a lot of time and energy and I, if I remember correctly talking to you, it hasn't quite got the business lift off, but it's, again, another big passion project. So why do you do that? Um, because I just I, – well, I mean, two things. One is I think it needs to be done, and if I'm not going to do it, who's going to do it? Mm. Um, and secondly, I get fantastic feedback and love from everyone for doing it. Yeah. Like I'm – from certainly women out there, they're all saying, oh, my God, we love this and and mm. – and, because I am constantly meeting people that have incredible businesses. Yeah. And so I feel like I've got to tell everyone about what they're doing. All right. So you've, you've interviewed 99 uh, people. Other one, yep. And no, actually 136. And this is your own interview. What, what have, you, have you learned? So let's say if there were three things you've absolutely learned, don't do this, what would be the three things not to do? Ooh, okay. The three things not to do would be don't start a business. <laughs> I'm going to laugh as I say this because I'm not listening to my own advice. I wouldn't start a business without doing a bit of research and working out a bit of a strategy for how you're going to make it 
turn into money. Uh, that is one thing that a lot of women have said to me and it makes enormous sense and um, it's something that I am intending on doing very soon. But, yes, that, that's one. Um, what would be another one? Um, not to do. Don't ignore marketing. I know people that aren't marketing themselves very well and they struggle and you can't build a business if no one no and, and if no one knows about it. Um, and the last one, gosh, I don't know. I thought you were going to ask me things that people should do. Okay, another one people shouldn't do is be very, very careful if you partner with someone. So I'm a huge fan of having partners. I absolutely love it. But you do need to have that document that says if we if we fall out, this is what we're going to do because I've been in that situation before. I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur. I had a graphic design company many years ago and we did fall out and we had that contract that said this is the exit clause and this is what we're going to do and we're going to give it to the accountant and they're going to work it all out. And it really saved everything. So I would never, ever uh, go into partnership with anyone without that um, sort of document that says, yeah, that says this is how we get out of it if we want to. So that's three very concrete um, recommendations. Do your research, develop a strategy on how you're going to take the idea and turn it into money. Good yep. piece of advice for us all to listen to. Don't ignore <laughs> yes. marketing. A lot of people do. And be very careful about the partner you choose and having gone into a partnership, have an out clause. So yep. you snuck in a fourth one there. Now, what are the three things you should do to make She's the Boss epically successful? <laughs> these are really, mentioning the three that you've just listed. These are really hard questions, Fabian. Okay. Um, the three things that I need to do. One is I need to monetize it by finding a sponsor or finding brands that I can align with, I think. Um, I also need a strategy. I think that's really important and I haven't done one. It's it's kind of organically grown. Um, and the third thing is well, we haven't really talked about the elephant in the room, which is my big, hairy, audacious goal for She's the Boss, is that I'm going to start a TV network for women in business um, that's only got female hosts. So I guess the third thing I need to do is go and raise the funds, do that cap raise, and I am in the process of it and get that up and running. So I'm going to ask you to be really brave and because I work with women, you know that. And I, live and <laughs> no, I didn't even think about that when we started this. Go on. <laughs> so I think there's a question I want to ask you, and I had this with a very famous uh, journalist recently, Channel 10 journalist, and I did the same thing to her. Um, I think we're at our gracious best when we're honest and yep. people learn a lot from us when we're honest. Mm -hmm. What is stopping you? With the, you know, you've got the evidence of the power of she's the boss. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that pulling a strategy together is crucially important, but here you are about to develop another idea and you haven't got a strategy yet for she's the boss. Yeah. You're plucking funding strategies out of the air. Mm -hmm. What stops you putting a strategy together and how can we help other women? Because a lot of women know they should do that and don't do it. So what's stopping you do, doing that very thing? Um, I would say, and this would be very, very common, I'm sure for a lot of women is my, my go-to answer is I haven't had the time. That's a terrible answer with I me know, because, because it's not really there's true. no more time to get. <laughs> I know. Um, so why, uh, look, there's, I think that 
I probably haven't done enough work on myself and whatever the the mental block is in my head that is something to do with money because I've had three or four businesses that have been pretty successful, but as soon as they get to that tipping point, I've run scared. Um, and otherwise, I, I don't really know what it is. I was talking with the fabulous Kim McGuinness from SBE the other day, and she said, don't stand, don't, you shouldn't be sitting in front of a bookcase, which everybody knows me for these days, but you shouldn't be in front of a bookcase because that means that the money won't come. So I don't know whether it's that or what it is, but well, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. So Nothing put, is up to chance. So let me put it back on you. What should I do? You're the no, leadership I'm not gonna expert. I'm so not going to answer that. I'm doing the interview, young lady. Right. I think the interesting thing is that you said something which I think is really important to lots of women, and that is uh, have I, am I being my own obstruction? Am I standing mm-hmm. in front of myself? So what might have you running away from making the money or monetizing an idea that is important to you? I don't know. I mean, that's starting to get into psychological stuff. I don't. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. That's what the I psychology. do for a <laughs> And I did do it as my major at uni, and I still do. And so I can recognise it's being done to me. Um, I don't. I don't know what the answer is to that one. So I'm going to give you a suggestion, and okay. I think it might be really useful for you, but useful to lots of women. Mm-hmm. This has got nothing to do with money. And right. the reason why it's stuck is because you've attached strategy to money. Okay. As opposed to saying, if I put a strategy together, I will reach more women, I will help more women, the value add of she's the boss will become very visible to people, I'll build collaborations that matter to me with people who can help enable the idea and as a result of doing that really well, we will earn what we want to earn. Yes. But if you've attached, I need to get a strategy to get money or I need to get a fundraiser to put money into the television station, it doesn't work that way. And the advice you've both listened to and absorbed is saying get a strategy down. And you know what? That's not to make money. It's to pick this beautiful vision up and make it sustainable. That's all. And I think I'd be saying to you and any other woman seeking to put a plan together, don't worry about the money. Money will follow clarity. Yeah. And if you seek money for something that you're not personally clear on, it'll be a challenge. And so then comes the very Good telling advice. question, as, am I worth that success? Do I believe in myself that I can, can achieve that? And I, I have to say I've come to learn that the, the trick to this is we say collaboration matters, but I don't think we really understand collaboration isn't friendship or talking or connecting. Collaborating is the shared furnace of intent. We have to find someone else who is as passionate about elevating women entrepreneurs. Yes. And as women know, women I think are collectively massively squirmy about money. It's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing because we're not greedy by nature. So stick with that and know that the money you want follows the purpose you care for, not the other way around. So what do you think to the idea of putting a strategy down and do it because you want She's the Boss to go as far as She's the Boss can go and let the money follow that, not lead it? Yeah, good idea. Good idea. And I guess, look, part of the reason when you say, why do you keep going? Why do you keep going? Would be because I know that I'm doing, I know that this has legs. I do believe in this so much that I feel like by doing it, 
people, it, it'll all just happen. But I have done that for a long time with Handle Your Own PR and I do understand that you do need to have a path that you're planning on following. I don't think you can just meander on. And if there's one thing I've learned in business is, you know, we all talk, you know, a lot of us as women talk about karma and, you know, I'll do favours for people and karma, it'll come back to me a million times. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I do no. like helping people. But I think you have to ask. You have to learn to ask. I think that's probably the biggest. Maybe that's one of the things that I have learned from She's the Boss is the ability to ask people for help and how much we all love to be asked to help people. Of course. Of course we do. Of course we do. And, you know, who cares for the carer, who who helps the helper, who's always helping other people or caring for other people. That's a very wise thing to know about yourself. And there, for me, lies the the fertile soil of real collaboration. Yeah. And if if we don't recognise collaboration isn't come into my idea and do this, it's helped me create the idea, helped me plan the strategy. So I, th- I actually think a strategy is a uh, articulated uh, series of pillars that will take you from where you are to where you want to be. Yeah, stepping stones and ha- maybe. You have to yeah. deconstruct your vision. And say, what are the, the key pillars? Who am I serving? Well, you know the women who are following She's the Boss. Um, um, uh, what What is this for me in my life? So that you're able to say these are the things that I want out of this. Yeah. And then what are the key components, the collaborations? You know, if you could wave a, a magic wand out of the 99 women that you've met and known, which three or four do you want to ask to dinner? And instead of having a general conversation, have a conversation about your strategy. Yeah, nice. Good and one. And make it lunch, not dinner. <laughs> or drunch, as you so yeah, lovely call yeah. it. <laughs> I think you're yeah. a very clever woman and I think that you've been very generous in letting me take complete control of this interview and surprise you with the line <laughs> question. Oh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely loving being on the other side of it. But you're asking me really difficult questions that I wasn't expecting. I would think it was going to be like, oh, this is where I grew up and this is what I did. But anyway, I'm Do you know why I'm I do it. this? Do you why? know why I do this? Kind of time for fluff. <laughs> I don't see I that as fluff. I, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. And Thank I think you. to myself, oh, my God, there are so many great ideas that women are brewing and so often our ideas get a little stymied. Mm. And it's not, It's a very cool thing. I love if, if you, I'm having dinner with you and we're chilling. I love those things and I'll listen to them forever. Um, but I also like the quirky side and I like to see what happens with ideas when they are manifest in the world. Yeah. So in the spirit of going to the lighter part of life, what's your favourite <laughs> pet? My favourite pet is a dog. What sort of dog? Um, I like big dogs. I don't have one, but I like if I was to talk about my ideal dog, it would be a cross between a Great Dane and an Old English Sheepdog or an Irish Wolfhound. Why don't you have that? Because I live in a small inner city house and I have a very <laughs> barky dog that's a terrier. I've got three boys that don't like feeding him and walking him and all that kind of thing, so that's enough for me at the moment. But... One day, if it was just me on my own, I'd get a great big bear of a dog to snuggle up to. I think they're divine. It's heavenly. I think it's really hilarious. Big lads don't like small dogs particularly, do they? 
Well, they were very little lads when they chose him at the adopted dog place. Yeah, yeah. So he's won his spot in the family. Oh yeah, he sleeps. Um, he 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 spends his nights scratching on different doors to go into different bedrooms and sleep on their beds. Oh, that's a bit cute. What's his name? <laughs> his name's Nugget. Nugget. What a and, lovely and then we've got name. my. I should say also my beautiful boyfriend Dave has got a. Cavoodle or something. I don't know. It's like a little, small, blondie, cute, huge, big brown eyes kind of very, very well behaved, gorgeous little dog called Lola as well. So we, and Nugget and Lola love each other. So, oh, that's kind of nice. So mm. you had twins. I had twins, yeah. What do you love about being a mum? Oh my God, I don't even know where to start. I feel like I was meant to be made a mum. And if I mm. had married someone when I was younger and we'd had more money, I would have had 10 children. Like I love being a mum. What do I love about it? I love babies. Mm. I love being needed. I love mm. caring for people. So I love cooking and I don't mind cleaning and I love getting clothes and um, dressing them and all that kind of thing when they were little. And now I like having other adults that I can talk to <laughs> who I've brought up so they well I was going to say agree with me that doesn't actually happen but um, share the same <laughs> values same tastes yes yeah well same sense of humor as well yeah. I think that's important are you and, close friends with them yeah I am pretty close friends with all of them and mm. we and they're very social boys because they've got mm. a very social mum so um and I like that I like that I could put them in front of almost anyone and they're very comfortable talking with people is Jake one of your kids? He is. Jake is my 20-year-old and the twins are 15. So and the twins are called Ned, homeschooling? Ned and Tom. No, you don't have to do that when they're 15. Oh. Thank goodness because my heart goes out for all those women through COVID that have had two, three, four, five-year-olds. I mean, I've been working with them. I've been interviewing some of them and the thought of having to juggle full-time work and homeschooling is oh my God. beyond. I mean, those women deserve a medal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's your favourite black tie event? Wow, I don't go to black tie events. Good. All right. That's a good one. <laughs> I mean, I like getting frocked up with the girls and going out for cocktails. But, I, I mean, God, the last black tie event I went to would have been a function maybe for a boyfriend when I was younger. I think my brother worked for Ernst & Young for a few years and I went as his date to a Christmas party <laughs> <Great>. at Leonda. <laughs> but there's a thing, isn't it? Yes. That's history for you. <laughs> What do you love about Helen Mirren, by the way? She's one of my favourite all time. Oh, gosh, where do I even start with Helen? I love it that she swears <laughs> and I love that about you and I have to say to anyone that when we first met I absolutely had a filthy mouth the first time we spoke <laughs> and you loved it and I thought I'm going to adore this woman. Yeah. Um, I love it that she swears. I love it that she's very honest. I love it that she cares about how she looks like we all do, but she mm. isn't going out and getting plastic face and plastic body. No. Um, and the other thing that I kind of like about her, and I can relate to it a bit, is that I think as she's got older, she's got more beautiful. Judy Dench yes. is another one yes, who, when they were younger women, and I'm not saying that, you know, classic beauty or anything else, I'm just saying they weren't stunning, Stand shall we out. say. Yeah. You know, they yeah. wouldn't have been models. Yeah. And I was a bit like that. I was a red-haired, freckled, you know, plump girl when I was younger. And you grow into yourself. And I yes. just feel that those two women are how I would like to be when I'm 80. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Or with seventy you. and eighty, because I don't think Helen's quite eighty yet, but Judy is definitely on the way. And aren't they divine? And I love their Absolutely. haircuts. I love the clothes they wear yeah. every time they go on the red carpet. Aging disgracefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's the big adventure? You talk about the television show. You want to get that up off the ground. What does Mm -hmm. that look like? Um, it's going to, I was actually thinking about it just the other day, cause I'm about to start pitching it again. I'm, I've, um, met with the wonderful Antonia Grimard who came to my Sydney, she's the boss lunch and then connected with me afterwards and then told me she specializes in helping women do pitch decks. So it's just been a beautiful thing. Um, so what I want to do is start a network a little bit like Netflix or, well, for anybody that knows Ticker TV, it would be very like Ticker TV because I'm actually copying what I liked out of that model. But the idea is that I will create an app that will be on your TV, on your phone, on your laptop. Um, inside the app, you'll come in and it will have, like it does on Netflix where it says thrillers and romance movies mm-hmm. and action movies, it'll say digital marketing, Um finance, um, inspirational women, and that each each of those kind of rows as you go along would have maybe 30 different shows hosted by 30 different women on those topics. Um, so that's kind of my vision. I only want female hosts because I just don't think we see enough women hosting shows firstly and secondly the ones that we do see and no disrespect to the amazing women that are out there and have gone through an extremely different difficult kind of work experience I think in something that's so male dominated but they're very pretty girls and I don't think that's that's necessarily the truth um, in real life so what television has done has elevated some very beautiful women who are very smart What I want is the smart women, and I don't care whether they're particularly beautiful. We can yeah. make them beautiful women seem women and men. You know, I was having that conversation with someone the other day. Beauty is really so tied in with personality. Oh, that for you, sure. That you look at someone who on paper looks stunning and you hear them speak and you go, oh, my God, no, I don't awful. want anything to do with them. And the same thing that you might look at someone and go, well, you know, they're not the most attractive person and they open their mouth and they've got a great sense of humour and they're bubbly yeah. or whatever and you just go, oh, my God, you're stunning. I so, had one of the best experiences of my life yeah, around that when I was in the fashion industry and in retail. Oh, yeah. And I remember there was a young couple that came into one of our showrooms, one on Clifton, in Clifton Hill on Hoddle Street. Right. And the sales manager came to me and said, Fabi, we've got a really awkward sale in the showroom. We really want your help. I'm not quite sure how to manage it. And I go out, there's a beautiful young couple. Yeah. And they're getting married and they want to buy each other a leather jacket. But she is a, a little my child. Right. So one elbow finishes, you know, she um, finishes on one the where there's a hand coming out of her elbow and the other one had a hand coming out of her shoulder. Right. And the staff didn't know what to do. So I just started talking to them and uh, working out how we would make this so they would both have something they really loved. Yeah. And I reckon an hour later I felt like I was in the presence of an angel. Wow. I really, I did the most, you know, I'm an atheist, which doesn't help, but she felt <laughs> I know like what an you angel. Mean, yeah. She was one of the most exquisite people I've ever had the privilege of meeting. And I ended up giving them two jackets for oh, their wedding as a present. Absolutely 
beautiful young woman and I've worked with so many models over my career because I was in the fashion industry for a decade. Yeah. And you'd often start off thinking they were beautiful and then their, their attitude or something about them would progressively rob them of what nature had given them because what was inside didn't match what was outside. Yeah. And you would have others who had a certain charisma on screen that was something special. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been fantastic you interviewing yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, really lovely to be on the other side. Is there anything left that you wish I'd asked that you'd like your listeners to hear? Um, I would still, I don't know whether you've got a spare 10 minutes, but I would still love to tell people a little bit about what I've done in my life to lead me to this stage. Just okay. in that I've travelled a lot. I've, well, shall I, I'll, I'll just you jump in and tell, tell you the story. What, you tell us what the story is that brings you to this stage. What a great thing to finish on. Because I grew up in a great family, as I said, my dad was in the British Army, so we lived mm -hmm. in Cyprus and Germany and England and Ireland till I was about 12. We came to Australia. Um, my parents knew no one in Australia at all. They were 35 and 36 with four kids mm -hmm. and no career. My dad was a doctor, but in the Army, doctors don't earn anything more than anyone else. And I mm -hmm. clearly remember when we moved here, him going, oh, my God, like doctors get paid very well here. So that was great. Um, I then moved into St Kilda as soon as I finished school and I was headhunted um, by the Herald Sun. It was the year that Rupert Murdoch bought it and they headhunted me to become a manager and to go and work in the classifieds as a manager, which I have to say, Firstly, it was fabulous being headhunted and I loved the training, which was all done in a corporate box at the MCG. And I remember thinking, wow, it's probably the only time I've ever been there. Um, but then I went into the office and I had possibly the nastiest woman ever as my boss, like super nasty. I remember her saying, I was a psychiatric nurse once and you know what we used to do with troublemakers? We'd shove their head down the toilet. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, who One is this woman? Yes. yes, and she'd been there forever and she was hard as nails. Um, from that, I left and went and worked on the Sunday Observer with Peter Isaacson, who was an amazing man, and it was really the only job I've ever stayed at for any amount of time. I was there for five years and it was like a huge big family. Um, and then I left there to start my own business, which went incredibly badly, incredibly quickly. So I decided I'd been designing, you know, ads and things for people forever. Why don't I start doing flyers and leaflets for people and run my own business? So my first person was a guy in Turak that had a pizza shop. I don't know how I found him. And he ordered $1,500 worth of flyers and then did a runner on me and his mother. He has, His mother had invested her house into his business. I'll never forget it because we got creditors letters for ages, you know, telling us how we were going to get half a cent in the dollar or whatever. Um, and I was, and I, and this is a measure of what I'm like. I remember thinking, I cannot let that printer go without the money. And so I got a job. And over the next year and a bit, I paid him off. I think it was $50 a week until I'd paid him his $1,500. Then I got into silicon graphics and CD ROMs years before anyone really even knew what they were. I remember going out to people and saying, a CD ROM is, does this. And, um, and you can actually create graphics where you might be able to 
to touch it with your mouse and it'll up will pop something else. And then people would go, no, I can't believe it. And I ended up partnering with Apple and we did, we, I did some interesting things with that business. I was ironically the head of new business for the, for um, them. Then I left and the two designers in that company said, let's start to start a company together. So I had a graphic design company for a couple of years. We, we got to a stage where it was going really well. I think we were making about $35,000 a month, which was pretty good back in 92. Um, and I said to my partners, listen, why, you know, cause I'm all about lifestyle. So I said to my partners, let's start taking every third Friday off. Cause there were three of us and they said, no, and we don't like your attitude towards business um, and your work ethic. We would expect you to be in here at like eight 30 every morning. And it got to the stage that they would literally, I'd walk in at quarter to nine and they'd be tapping their phone, their watches and saying, where are you? And I just said to them, right, that's it. This is not what I signed up for. Um, got them to buy me out, which was that fantastic clause. And then I, I went to Jamaica. I went, well, I didn't, I went to via LA to New Orleans and spent a week on my own in New Orleans. And then I went to Jamaica and I lived in the ghetto in Montego Bay for three months with a couple of old black guys that had never met a white woman before. If I don't think they even really knew any white people at all. And, um, had a brilliant, brilliant time, ran out of money. These guys supported me for a while while I was waiting for money to come in. Just had a wonderful, wonderful time. Got really, really skinny. And I was on my way over to Ireland for my grandfather's 80th, which was the idea of, you know, I'll take this long trip there. So ended up in London, got a job in advertising, had a brilliant time in London. I had my 30th birthday there. I, I got met, I, I met my soon to be husband and we got married in Dublin, did a whole lot of traveling around um, Europe. And then he and I took off for six months and did India and Thailand and Australia because he hadn't been to Australia and then came here and, um, and, what did I do when we came? Oh, the, came here and that's pretty much, I think I've told you all the rest of it. So then I started Handle Communications, then Handle Your Own PR, have been doing that for years and then good old COVID comes along and I think, why don't I host some lunches for female founders online? <laughs> and then, you know, why don't I start a podcast? And, and so it's become what it has today. So what an, a wonderful adventurer's life, how much fun you've had. And I have to say as a fellow marketer, how much fun marketing and advertising actually is if that's something you've had uh, association with public relations, advertising, the whole marketing package. If you, you know what to do, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And the people that work in that industry, if you work in agencies, they party hard and they play and they work hard. Work hard. So the I don't think I've ever seen such well, uh, well stocked bars as I've seen in the advertising <laughs> agency, <laughs> along with everything else. That's right. Loads of fun. So fun talking to you. I hope um, lots and lots of people get to listen to this because your story is a wonderful story. Your generosity for women is benchmark. Uh, your courage in persevering. You're like a crazy pirate going across <laughs> the oceans and finding fascinating islands to visit. Oh, the world is you. a better place for your passage through Jules Bond. Wow. Thank you so much, baby. And thank you for agreeing to interview me. It might feel totally chuffed to have someone like you interviewing me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, 
go to she'sthebosscomau 